Welcome to the Recapery, the History Chicks Media Recap Emporium. Today we are continuing our coverage of the 2006 Sofia Coppola movie Marie Antoinette starring Kirsten Dunst. This is part two and in part one, very briefly, the 14-year-old Archduchess of Austria was sent to France to become the new Dauphine and hijinks ensue. She has a hard time adjusting and when we left her, they had just taken off to Paris for a delightful evening out and they have just returned to Versailles to receive some very bad news. As soon as they get out of the carriage, they find out that the king is gravely ill with smallpox. And then we go to the king's bedside and the aunts are praying. They're at the side of his bed and the priest is there. So the priest won't listen to the king's final confession if the mistress is in the room. In fact, he can't give him last rites with the mistress even in the picture. The king has to repent of the sin of lust. He he has to renounce her completely. And so he knows what he has to do. And he writes this letter to Madame Dubarry. I am sick and know what I have to do. Rest assured, I will always have the most tender feelings of friendship for you. And then he goes on to say in real life, my duty is to God and to my people. So you must retire from the court tomorrow. This is all a voiceover and we're watching her actually leave in the most spectacular, voluminous, blue silk hooded cape with her monkey in tow. (laughs) I actually wondered about that cape. That is a curiously inflatable hood. (laughs) It was. I've never seen anything so voluptuous. No, voluminous. (laughs) Voluptuous. Yeah. Okay. So in real life, you should know she offered to go first. It really should be known that she offered knowing that this was holding up perhaps the progress of his soul to heaven. Um, so movie Dubarry looks resentful and tricked, but I, I think Dubarry was sad for her future and maybe for the king personally, but not in any doubt that this was how it was going to have to go. I mean, you always knew that was the end game, although he's awful young (laughs) to have this happen that's kind of a bummer isn't it yeah well i think in this whole movie they didn't portray duberry they wanted to give her more of a you know kind of a tacky character than she really was i mean she she worked her way up from a very lower class but she was a patron of the arts and she was a friend of voltaire so she wasn't this you know as tacky i guess is what i'm trying to say as they make her out to be but And Dubarry took the night watch, even though she was susceptible to smallpox as well. And I will tell you, the ants, who we don't necessarily like, also stood by his side every single day. And they had no immunity either. So ants during the day, Dubarry during the night. Everybody was very dutiful. And I admire them for it because that is pretty terrifying. Um, Most of the other houses all over Europe uh, had been inoculated by this point. And the exceptions, of course, Louis, his two brothers, (laughs) and the entirety of the French court. (laughs) Marie Antoinette herself was doubly immune and probably could have been the safest person to stay there. She had survived smallpox as a child, and was also re-inoculated when she was 12 years old before she ever came to France. So of all the people who could walk in there as safe as kittens, it would be her. But she, especially, and Louis were spirited away. So Dubarry can't come back 
if he gets better, because that would be, you know, like punking God. If you're remorseful for the sin of lust, and then when you're out of danger, you're like, JK, never mind. Thanks anyway, I'll catch you later. That's all over TV. Like in Will and Grace, Karen was going to get some bad news. Did you watch Will and Grace? Anyway, she's Mm -hmm. like, if I'm okay, I promise I'll dedicate the rest of my life to serving you, God. And then Will's reading and goes, it says you're fine. And Karen holds up her fingers, which are crossed, and she goes, fell for it again, God. (laughs) I don't think that's very different than a lot of people's human nature. (laughs) You know, when things are bad, you're looking for a reason you know, anything to hold on to for hope. And then human nature gets in the way. Okay, so DeBerry does not have a lot of stuff. And maybe people are packing her stuff later and a wagon is coming, you know, so she took her PJs and her jewels or her carry-on like you do. And her monkey. Don't forget the monkey. Yes. So she's off to a convent for a year at the king's request. And the movie made it seem like she's sent away and the king dies immediately, but it actually took him six more days. And I'm glad we missed most of it, frankly, because smallpox is a horrible death and not to be selfish, but also a horrible thing to see. And this is a beautiful movie. So all we see is his death scene and he's just on the verge of death and he says, bring me Dewberry. He cries and then he dies. Very romantic. So the king is dead. Long live the king. Requiescat in pace, King Louis the Fifteenth. R. I. P. Impressive. I am totally impressed. <laughs> and that sound, that thundering crowd of footsteps running to the new king, is straight out of history, straight out of the memoirs of Madame Campin, which is a memoir of one of Marie Antoinette's ladies in waiting. Everyone was trying to hurry to be seen to be first. And in the movie, they come to them. Marie and Louis are still in their pajamas and they tell them that the king is dead. Everybody drops to their knees, you know, long live the king. And he says, dear God, we are too young to reign. This is actually pretty realistic. In the movie, he was 18 and she was 17. In reality, they were about a year older. But he does say, dear God, we are too young to reign. Most of France had never known another king but Grandpa King because he had become king when he was five years old. Speaking of too young to reign. (laughs) Yeah, really? Well, Madame Etiquette wants to put her or in right away. Of course, she hangs on for a little while, but she is ultimately fired from her post and replaced with the Princess de Lombard. So, bah. I think that's a good replacement. You know, the angel on the shoulder rather than the woman who made you feel bad when you first moved there. So now we go to the coronation, which the timeline is a little backwards on this because the coronation was not until June the following year. I'm confused. I see narratively this makes a lot of sense to go straight to the coronation. There is a tableau, like a painterly like thing at the coronation um, with Louis and all the officials. It's just beautiful. They kind of freeze on it and the lighting becomes very painterly and note that Marie Antoinette does not get crowned. As the sunlight is shining on Louis, like God himself ordaining this masterpiece of a king, whatever, uh, Marie is on the sidelines because their marriage had yet to be consummated. So she was not able to be crowned queen because technically she wasn't. I think that this, when she looks kind of mournfully at the camera is the most beautiful picture of Kirsten Dunst, though. Of all the photo moments we get, this on her throne, big chair with her extremely <laughs> worried expression, is she's just so beautiful. I envy her having so many beautiful pictures of herself. It is something else. 
This whole movie. So I like the trip down the stairs uh, with the fleur-de-lis carpet. And Louis is so serious. And Marie Antoinette's just triumphant. And people are lying down the side. It's like royal music is playing in the background. And they just come down through their people. It's very beautiful. That carpet. Where'd they get that carpet? (laughs) Okay, so the music is actually The Cure. It is a song called Plain Song. And part of the lyrics are, brace yourself for this, it's all running out like it's the end of the world. Speaking of extravagance as to the carpet, we have a mock cannon fight on the Grand Canal with full-size ships, or at least half-size ships. And then we see that Leonard has been at her head again. She has a silver ship on her head. And you can see that the Duchess of Polignac has a birdcage. And ladies were getting crazy. Like, whole battles with little soldiers were on their heads. (laughs) Dog replicas, even loved ones ashes in urns in their hairdo yes i will link you to a book all about leonard that i just found and read and can't believe (laughs) well this hairdo is iconic we were watching the crown and there was a dress ball that wallace simpson and david were at there was a marie antoinette character and she had the boat in her hair famous and right after this we see marie antoinette's 18th birthday party This party, this famous party, actually was her 21st birthday party when all of these hijinks ensued. But for movie purposes, it is her 18th birthday. And so it looked like she was wishing on the candles and she can't blow them out because they're sparklers. But I know what she's wishing for. At least I think I know what she's wishing for. Action. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody there is wishing for action for her. (laughs) So she runs back and gives Louis a kiss or two. And look at his face, would you? He is so happy. And he's so proud that that happened in front of everyone. He actually wears lipstick around the rest of the party. Just so you just look at it. (laughs) I love the look on his face. He was so proud. He threw the party. Well, he said, we should throw a party. That's him throwing a party. Make it happen. Yeah, there's like fancy pastries and Chinese jugglers and big hair and snuff. Women taking snuff. That was pretty radical. And this must have been a whole freaking vineyard worth of champagne. Well, the whole thing is just as decadent as heck, for sure. My favorite part is when Leonard saves Marie Antoinette from setting her hair on fire. And then he blows out the candles and I couldn't stop laughing. (laughs) I loved it. This was actually based on... Something that happened in real life to one of his other clients. She was talking and wagging her hair around and whipped a lit candlestick right off of a table into the party. Yeah. And so that was like a little tiny homage to that famous story of Leonard. There's so much Leonard gossip flying around this party about him and how he prefers to spend his free time. I advise watching this scene with the subtitles on because there's some things that you can catch. Um, One of which is that Artois, the third brother, known for his problem gambling, says, big stakes, come on now, before he rolls the dice and loses. And his older brother, the king, had to bail him out of millions of livres in gambling debt. Millions. So this whole 50000 that Marie Antoinette spends, the brother who received no blame, is like a hundred times worse. Mm -hmm. In the whole fiscal downfall of France, she gets a lot of the blame. She did spend a lot and over her allotment, but she was a small part of that. 
Yes, many members of the royal family were far worse than her with personal expenditure. And we'll talk a little bit later about kind of the overwhelming cause of France's financial crisis. So there's a little bit of realism. And here's another one. The entertainers that come in spinning the plates and the parasols. All things Chinese started to become very fashionable during the reign of Grandpa King, but reached absolute obsession during the reign of Louis and Marie Antoinette. So I love these little touches of realism, although, of course, the timeline <laughs> is off. But whatever. Um, Louis, as usual, wants to call it early. He's trying to get her discreetly to send the dealers home. Like, it's time for a bed. <laughs> <laughs> She replies, you said we could play, but you never specified how long. And I think it's endearing that he plays this whole scene with a lipstick mark on his cheek, which is right right now very apparent. Oh, yeah. That's when you see it the most. It's almost a close up of it. And he's just like, OK, honey, we'll just don't lose our fortune. <laughs> but she's just I think it's so cute. Don't go to sleep. Don't you want to see the sunrise? And she really wants him to come to mm -hmm. her little party. And he's like, um, girl, I see it every day from the front end of the day when I go out <laughs> hunting. So no, I'm good. But he kisses her dice to humor her. And that's very good and husbandly, I think. And mm -hmm. then he just goes like, fine, that's fine. Stay up. Watch your watch your show. <laughs> I'm going to bed. <laughs> so then we see a bunch of drunken Egypts staggering through the garden to see the sunrise and it's beautiful it's a couple guys and a bunch of girls and they're all giggling through the fields clearly drunk they even have the champagne with them and the last shot you get is the five of them are drinking there's birds singing there's champagne flowing and the sun is rising across the water and someone says i think there's a fly in my champagne <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit of reality there like ants do come to a picnic <laughs> Well, also, I think Artois, right when they sat down, was vomiting into the Grand Canal. <laughs> Ew. Uh, yeah. Well, the whole thing does look pretty fun and innocent. This was transformed, though, uh, by the rumor mill into massive debauchery by rumors later, including the fact, fact, not fact, that Marie Antoinette was sleeping with Artois, her youngest brother-in-law. So, I mean, I love it, though. It seems so cozy. And nice. Also, Marie Antoinette's birthday is in November. I'm just saying. <laughs> so there wouldn't be as much green. Is that what you're saying? I'm like, the birds would be gone. But it's pretty. And that's what this movie is about. It's about setting that tone, you know, for the lavishness and the prettiness of it without having to actually smell it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. I have to tell you, I found out another fact about the shoes, all the shoes. Everyone at Versailles threw their shoes away about every three or four days because of the poop that was everywhere. Dog poop, people poop. Everyone just threw their shoes away like, screw this. I'm not cleaning this. And they would throw their shoes away. Wow. That's, I would never consider that. <laughs> the poop of Versailles. You could write a whole book on it. Man. <laughs> So we do see Louis healthy and up and about, although I wonder how many of his guys have sore heads in these days before Advil and before big sunglasses. They're out with dogs barking. I have to tell you, I just don't know. 
So now the aftermath, oh, oh. And what we see in Marie Antoinette's rooms are basically everyone's Taco Bell from the night before. (laughs) Mashed up cake and what is that, chicken? I don't know. So many glasses and just crap everywhere. And I do wonder what those maids are thinking. The queen is right there. Yeah, she didn't even make it into her bed. She'd fallen asleep on a chaise hair. And I I thought she looked really good. Because I don't ever recall, even in my teens, looking that good when I woke up on Saturday mornings. Well, of course, she's the original I woke up this way. She is in a different dress, though, from when she was at her party. Did you? I did not catch that. I Well, and I wondered. I was trying to catch a sight when they were running down to the water. Like, maybe she had changed her dress before to a Uh more comfortable dress, which I, whatever. (laughs) Or is this just supposed to be a different day and a different party entirely? Oh, I did not catch the dress. Maybe somebody threw up on her. Or she fell in the water or something. Oh, throwing up. Yeah, Artois was sitting next to her. Right. Big skirts. Well, I love that one-eyed wake up. I've been there, girl. I also think she might have lost an earring. (laughs) Wow, you are really attentive at this particular part. I was just looking at the mess going, holy cow, what waste. (laughs) And that was a good, you know, a good example for this particular time because there was so much extravagant waste like that and the maids are just cleaning it all up like no big we'll, well just they've seen it all before i guess yeah. but you have to wonder i'm sure they all came from families where there wasn't enough to eat and then here's all this like people are throwing away nine tenths of a cake i know that it took this guy a whole morning to make i don't know yeah i hope somebody eats it but i don't know if you would, where has it even been? You don't know. <laughs> Did they go take it out to the uh, uh, Le Petit Trianon and give it the, to the pigs? Probably. So the pigs are eating delectable pastries. Yeah. Well, Let the them pastry. eat cake. <laughs> uh, Marie does take another one of her famous baths. But in this bath, instead of looking like she's happy, she looks absolutely miserable. And I read it not just as having a hangover, but just miserable about what path her life was on because there wasn't any progress and the one thing that she needed there to be progress in so she decided that she needed a project in real life too this is when she starts building the hamo which is her little play village and also changing up the gardens we do see uh her talking to the man that is going to build the alley of trees little trees she has to settle for because they're cheaper but she is instrumental in redoing quite a bit of certain sections of the garden at versailles we do see the extravagance because mercy tells her slash us that she has already spent fifty thousand this month though she was behind the ants both brothers-in-law and several other members of court by the way but anyway I like that there is a mention of, quote, her charities. Yeah, that's the only mention in this movie, I think. Because she was active. She did help out, you know, widows and orphans. Not like, you know, don't get me wrong. She wasn't this pillar, but she helped out a lot more than this movie and a lot more than most history gives her credit for. There was actually a home for unwed mothers in Versailles town 
that Marie Antoinette started. And also, um, how, how am I going to say this? Maison Philanthropique uh, for elderly and widows and the blind, to which she was a significant patron. Though she hadn't originated that charity, she did provide a lot of its funding. Louis himself blows some significant ducats. And I shouldn't say blows because I'm the beneficiary of these expenditures. <laughs> Everyone in America is the beneficiary of this. <laughs> he sends some money, significant amounts of money, at the request of the American revolutionaries, largely because his advisors are still burned about relations with Britain after the Seven Years' War, in which France lost most of Canada to Britain, lost Louisiana to Spain, which we covered that in the uh, Marie Laveau podcast, lost Senegal in Africa. This had been the war that put France in such debt in the first place. Um, not Marie Antoinette's shoe habit. No. That war had nothing to do with Louis and nothing to do with Marie Antoinette, but it was going to be the albatross on their shoulder, both mentally because the ambassadors are giving poor advice and financially, because it really was the thing that put us in debt. So they really couldn't afford to send money to America. Mm -mm. Even raising the taxes slightly. I mean, it was already, the taxing was already too high for most people to pay. This There was a financial crisis all over France. So to raise the taxes slightly, that's going to make people really, really upset. You know, there's a line in here that every time I watch this movie, I think, it sounds like something from drunk history. And maybe it's just the way it's delivered. But the advisors are trying to tell him to send this money to America. And he looks clearly looks like he's thinking it over. And he says, all right, then send funds to America. And it's just something about the delivery. It's so drunk history-esque <laughs> for some reason every single time. And then he picks up a rolled up paper and uses it as a telescope. So you can see how involved in this conversation he really is. Yeah, I think he's just bored at the paperwork part. He'd be mm -hmm. checking his phone instead if it was a little later. Well, um, so France's help to the Americans was central to our, I guess I can say our, ultimate victory. And at this point, it was sort of under the table money. And later they got involved openly and in person to their great cost. By the end of America's Revolutionary War, France was three 0.3 million livres in debt. So Marie's 50,000, come on, is not the reason that things went south. Drop in the bucket. Now, I do think that Louis had a reasonable objection because he says right away, I can't exactly see assisting those who are rejecting their sovereign. See, Louis gets it intuitively. <laughs> you are going to set precedent. A rebellion of subjects against their king is hereby open for business. Do you remember way back in the Queen Elizabeth, the first podcast of the History Chicks, Queen Elizabeth did not want to take action against Mary Queen of Scots because of the precedent. If one anointed queen was executed, that means all anointed queens are eligible to be executed. See, he had a good instinct, but is getting bad advice. And he doesn't have the experience to back himself up, you know, yeah. the confidence of having made good decisions in the past, which he really hasn't done any. He's just been saying, you know, all right, then do whatever you say is basically what he's been doing. It does serve the principles of democracy or whatever, but it does not serve him, his family or 
in fact, the country of France at all. So, well, there you go. Live and learn or just learn and not live. (laughs) (laughs) So Marie is taking her harpsichord lesson. She was very into music. This was something she would have been doing. Oh, my goodness. Historical hints from Sofia Coppola. Marie Antoinette is being tutored by the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. This guy was a champion fencer, a composer, an orchestra conductor, a virtuoso violinist, and the cause of many ladies' fans fluttering their feathers off. Let's just put it that way. Um, He was, and I'm sorry, this is just what they called him. It was not necessarily politically correct for these times, but they called him Black Mozart. He was more quality personality than Mozart, frankly. Um, He later became a soldier. So I love this little moment of realism. (laughs) He doesn't have any lines. He doesn't speak, but he's there. (laughs) And nobody knows who he is. No, they don't even say his name, do they? Mm -mm, No, you have to look at the IMDB and see what was he was credited for right no in fact there's not a lot of legitimate color at versailles oh okay so i i like that they made it it wasn't a politically correct maneuver he was really there and i (laughs) like that they put him there yeah so yeah oh i i agree well it's announced to marie your brother the emperor is here to see you like she doesn't know who her brother is it's emperor joseph the second and he's come because She has yet to consummate her marriage. Again, I say it over and over again. This is the main point of this whole movie is get Marie and Louis into bed. So Mama Teresa has been getting really upset and she has sent her son, the emperor, to go correct the situation. Although he traveled incognito as the Count of Falkenstein. (laughs) 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 Because different protocol was involved, i.e., no protocol. He even stayed in town. He didn't stay at Versailles because as the count, he was not entitled to stay at Versailles. Everyone knew, though, this is like the dumbest thing to me. Everyone knows who he is. So the fact that he calls himself something else (laughs) makes you treat him differently. It seems so dumb to me. It was like a little rule. But he also cannot stand the macaron. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Ah, ah, ah. Well, they sit down to tea. It's a beautiful tea and it's special jasmine tea from the emperor of China. There's a flower at the bottom and when she pours the hot water on it, the flower opens. Again, there's another nod to the Asian influences at Versailles is this tea that she got. And of course, the virginity thing, it's often called, you know, a flower opening or deflowering. I don't know. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Oh, it does now. (laughs) And I will never watch that scene the same way again. And they are in the bedroom. They're in Marie's bedroom having this little tea party and having this conversation about her gambling debt, her choice of friends, and most importantly, her lack of children. Her brother is 14 years older than she is. And of course, by the standards of the day, technically is old enough to be her father. And in reality, he mocked her hair. He mocked that rouge she wore. He thought everyone in France looked like they were sick. But it was so important in France to wear this rouge that women of the lower classes who could not afford actual rouge would use red wine. So she's starting the fashion and she's also maintaining the fashions there. And that's her whole job. Mm -hmm. I do want to ask you about one thing. What do you think when she says, have you come to take me home What do you think about that line? I thought, oh, my goodness. I don't know. I thought she was just kind of joking. 
But now that you say that, <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe that was what she wanted. We had talked about this in part one. If she gets thrown out of France, if this doesn't happen with her husband and she gets thrown out and she goes home, you know, maybe she is does want it. And that's what she's saying right here. Is that what you're thinking or no? Yeah, maybe. Uh, you know how like when you're hoping it's not something and you kind of make a little joking remark to see what the other guy's going to say? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I think yep. that's probably what that was. Well, but what he's really here for is sex education. This is actually, in real life, what it really, really took. But he does listen to Joseph about the keys and the locks. Yes. And they're in front of the animals. So animals mating is something that Louis would have seen as well. So Louis arrives confidently to Marie Antoinette's bed and the great work is accomplished. <laughs> uh he does. He comes in. He's got he looks so confident. He's got his nightgown on and they take off his robe and he he climbs into bed and he just goes for it. Finally, he gives her a gentle kiss, pulls her to him. And then the screen goes black. And all she says is, oh, oh. So the date is actually recorded. August 18th, 1777. Your life is an open book, Marie Antoinette. Thankfully, because she was getting so much grief about it. So, yes, her life should be an open book. She should be telling everybody that they can just shut it now. And bells ring out for us, the audience, as we get a joyful Marie Antoinette in the garden. Seven years of drought are over. <laughs> I love it. And again, going back to your... Uh, flower thing she's laying among the flowers oh there you go in a flower dress <laughs> in a flower dress so fast forward to the results although more than a year later at first i was thinking geez all these people watching her give birth but honestly i probably had half that many <laughs> although mine were all trained medical professionals and i didn't have to see them at breakfast the next day so um hmm. so marie antoinette falls unconscious and louis's protective instinct kicks in he's the window man dun -dun -dun -dun. And as a result of what happened here, he put an end to public viewing of the birth and cut it down to personal friends and like five officials, which was a big improvement. So this is the last time Marie Antoinette's going to have to deal with the whole court in the room with her. Mm -hmm. I think history gives him a bad rap because he wasn't a very effective king. But things like that kind of say a lot about his character, which is positive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The look of love between Marie Antoinette and Louis is very good here. She's at first she's very worried because it was a girl. She's worried about what his reaction is going to be. If she's going to see disappointment in his face or um, anger. I don't think he's built for anger, no. but um, he does not care. He has been sucked in by the miracle of it all. And he is there. He is for her. He is with her. I, I just think it was amazing. Mm -hmm. I, I, it was great. So in Marie's suite, the little baby who is very elaborately dressed, see that's what happens when you don't have to do the laundry, <laughs> is laying on the little sofa and Marie Antoinette says, and this is historically accurate, poor little girl, you were not what was desired, but you're no less dear to me. A boy would be the son of France, but you are mine. I love it. I do too. And then Versailles reaches in and takes Maria Therese away for the wet nurse. Madame Etiquette tells her that she's in a fragile condition, this fragile condition, after she gave birth. So she can't nurse herself, which is what Marie wanted to do. 
She's like, no, no, we have people for that. Well, and not done, especially for queens. It was thought to be, and sort of is, a method of birth control, an unreliable one, but unacceptable for a queen who still needs to produce an heir. Mm -hmm. Back in the saddle. (laughs) (laughs) So Louis gives his wife the petite Trianon as her hideaway. I just want to note that Grandpa King built it for Madame Pompadour, who died before it was ready. And recently in show history, it had been occupied by Madame du Barry. This is the house of the king's favorite. I would like to throw out here that Marie Antoinette filled a vacuum when there was no queen at Versailles when she first got there. And now, due to the way Louis is, she's filling another vacuum. There's no mistress to play off the wife. There's no mistress to get on your side and further your cause, to blame for things, Mm -hmm. especially that last one, notably. Louis did not have an affair at all. And he was the first king in 200 years not to do that. That's a long time. That's a lot of mistresses. But can you, I mean, Louis is not that guy. No, no, he's not. I guess it's a whole nother discussion. Like if you're a queen, do you want your husband to have a mistress so you don't have to deal with that? Or do you not want him to have a mistress so that you're the only person he's sleeping with? I don't know. I guess I don't know that she cared either way. Mm. Because of the way she launches here on her own um, hideaway, uh, the first thing we see is her in her music room, very languid, listening to music and smelling flowers. That was a nice little scene, I guess. But to Rose Bertin, who is her dressmaker, she says, I want something simple, more natural to wear in the garden. And it sure looks like a lot to me. <laughs> but compared to the other dress of the time, it, it is a simple muslin dress that she wears and she has everybody wear. It probably felt like yoga pants after all the <laughs> uh, panniers and all that stuff. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. Well, I do love this peaceful bird chirping, hanging out time. This little chapter coming up is... I would say probably the best chapter of her whole life. She and her friends at the Hamo, the Hamo, her little village where peasants were employed to wash the eggs so they wouldn't be covered in chicken poo poo. The pigs were washed every day. Ribbons were put on their necks and the cows had bows on their tails and peasants were employed to bake bread all day so it would smell nice out there. Sweet job for a peasant. Yeah, no kidding, because they probably got to eat the bread, too. But in the movie, she says, I love the country to her friends. And yeah, she loves the sanitized country, you know, not the real country. She wouldn't deal too well with that. I just love how the Duchess de Polignac cannot deal at all. They're picking strawberries and she's like, oh, you have to brush the dirt off. But they're (laughs) nice after that. Like, ooh, I don't know. Some, oh, look, you can just brush it off. Yeah. Uh, And then (laughs) the Duchess of Polignac's, oh, look, the chickens are out. Fabulous. Sort of gaggy, really. (laughs) I mean, the rich ladies at the play farm. Marie Antoinette is not the only one that has a play farm, by far. She had been inspired by the Hamo at the Chateau de Chantilly about 30 miles away from Paris. We'll give you a link. The ants had one built too. So this is not something that Marie Antoinette thought of all on her own. Yeah, but it's something that she loved to do because I don't think she ever really got into the formality and rules of being at Versailles, the strictness of it all and you know how easy it was to mess up. She never got into that. 
So having this place to escape to was just just wonderful. I mean, who wouldn't want a weekend house like this? Where you drink milk out of a sev pitcher. That's right. <laughs> and your little child who's in her matching simple gown speaks French. That blew my mind. The first time I saw the movie, I'm like, everybody's speaking English. But little Marie Therese is speaking French. <laughs> I love how she goes. They see a bee and the little tiny girl goes, Ricardé en petite bee. And it's so cute, so cute. But most little girls would see a bee and shriek and run away. <laughs> you wouldn't, you know, stagger around. Don petite bee, petite bee. It was so cute. <laughs> Well, maybe she hadn't been stung yet. Oh, true. I don't know. I think there's an instinctive, like, adrenaline rush when you see a bee. I I don't know. Becca picked one up when she was probably about this age, probably two. Mm. She saw one and it was sitting there and she picked it up and that was the first time she got stung. Oh, no. That was a bad idea. Well, I like how the ladies are reading Rousseau. They want to learn about philosophy. What is the natural state of man? Or whatever. I do not know how much any of them are internalizing any of this. I mean, the Princess de Lamballe was no intellectual. The Duchess de Polignac (laughs) was 100% pretending to be interested. I'm guaranteeing you right now. (laughs) Maybe it was a good time for her to take like a brain nap. I do love the tableau of people just floating in the canal with that expensive rug trailing into the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. Every scene in this movie is beautiful. But yes, that one is exceptional. They're just quiet. And it takes a long time to get the boat across the screen. Sofia Coppola took the time in that shot to say, this is what it's like. It's a slow life. It's a dreamy one. So it's a delightful era in Marie Antoinette's life, still with no conception of what's going on in real life for real people. I cannot necessarily blame her for that. You know, I just don't know what venue she has to learn of the depth of the suffering. Mm -hmm. I agree. So when the next scene opens, there is a whole conversation between the Ambassador Mercy and a member of the clergy about the need for, quote, perceived austerity. That is the very, very first hint we get that the outside world is regarding Versailles, if Versailles is not regarding the outside world. Mm -hmm. And... Mercy has to explain to Marie Antoinette that her whole bailing out on propriety thing by hanging out at the Petit Trianon with her friends is not sitting well with the high and mighty up there in the big house. Her whole point of this house was to get away from the protocol. But people of rank are guarding their perks very jealously. We saw that from the beginning during the levee. Who hands the queen her chemise was of paramount importance. So being excluded from an entire building at Versailles when your rank entitles you to go there is Mm -hmm. a violation of etiquette. Yeah, and they do show this because one woman is upset that she has requested an audience with the queen, but hasn't gotten it. And she says, how can we be expected to live in a place without any certainty of our position? Like, wow. Well, and did the Duchess of Char have that big of an accent before? (laughs) Is that who that was? I think Um, so. I don't remember. I just don't think she did. I thought it was a little bit. Maybe maybe it's like when you get mad, your accent comes out kind of. I don't know. (laughs) Well, anyway, Marie Antoinette has a brilliant solution that seems to satisfy everyone. They can be the audience for my stage debut. (laughs) She's living this fake 
country life. And then on stage, she's living a fake country life as someone of a lower class because she's sweeping and singing in this play. And all those people who she should have been having an audience with are in the audience and watching her. And she's singing in French and everybody loves it. Yay. So it was good. (laughs) It is an operetta called The Two Hunters and the Milkmaid from 1763. And she does not know how to use a broom. I laughed and laughed and laughed. (laughs) She has no idea. But Louis' applause is delightful. He is so in love and he yells, bravo! See, we can clap at these court performances. Everybody claps. Yeah. (laughs) I just think also she has a very misguided idea of what a milkmaid wears. (laughs) Well, maybe that's what they wear, you know, in her hemo. Oh, maybe. And that's close enough. You know, the skirt's pulled up so it doesn't get muddy and wet and put a kerchief on your head. And that's it. That's all there is to it. You just move the broom. That's all they're doing. So Louis arrives at the Petit Trianon to ask her to come home. They're having a party. Um, she needs to come meet the revolutionaries that are back from America. I love how when the Princess de Lumball comes to tell Marie Antoinette there's somebody there to see her, she has such a look of suppressed... I don't know, affection on her face. Maybe she's so happy that the whole marriage thing is finally working out for her friend. Um, You know, she's an idealist, even though her own marriage didn't go so well. And I also think there is a delightful byplay. She asks him, have you seen our little daughter Marie Therese today? And he says, she's been married off. It's like a little in-joke. Can't we wait till she's talking, says Marie Antoinette. It's really cute. So the marriage part is actually doing better now that they are hardly ever in the same house. (laughs) And I did think it was very touching that he allowed her the freedom there, and they at least maintained the fiction that he had to have permission to come into the grounds. Although, really, if he'd wanted to come to the grounds, he'd come into the grounds, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But again, this is another sweet scene that shows their relationship in this movie, you know. It's loving and kind and tender. So she says she will go and she goes to Versailles and she has a wreath she's going to put on the head of some lucky soldier. I want you to look at this situation from the outside, though. We've been through Versailles, we viewers, and what it thinks of itself and its etiquette. When she comes in, look at everybody on the left as basically these hippies come skipping in with all these flowers in their hair. To us, they still look fancy, but look at the disgust on the faces on the left. Marie Antoinette is gaining bitter enemies within Versailles as well. And so she's just going to run in there. What? Is this a queenly behavior? They were upset about cold meat. (laughs) And look at this situation. And she's going to put a flower crown on a soldier. He likes it, though. Oh, he does. Of course. The soldiers are all lined up and only one of them got it. So yay for him. This man, the Comte d'Estaing, who was just introduced, this is the only reason I know who it is. Mm -hmm. He he testified at her trial uh, in her favor and got himself the guillotine by doing so. So thus the power of the flower crown. Ooh, ouch. That's not pretty realism. No. (laughs) I want to go back to the hippies with the flowers in their hair. Okay. (laughs) And the people all upset because they have invested so much in their, you know, Versailles clothing. And now Marie's changing it. (laughs) What? Now I look out of fashion because I'm wearing this fancy Versailles dress and she's got her hippie cotton on. 
I don't think they were thinking that. I think they were thinking about like what debauchery is happening over there. Look at Heather coming back. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is when all those um, pamphlets started to be passed around that Marie Antoinette was having an affair with the Princess de Lambal because they spent so much time there together. Mm-hmm. It was fodder for gossip because there was no, I mean, not that she needed a chaperone, but there was nobody there from the establishment that could verify that that kind of stuff wasn't going on. Artois got dragged into it. Was she sleeping with her brother-in-law? I'm almost like you should have parked Madame Etiquette in the corner of the room. She could have prune face all day, but at least she could tell people what was not happening. Yeah, that's true. Well, so moving on down the line, Marie Antoinette has a tiny little stroke. Because she looks up and who is there? It's... Von Fersen, Count Von Fersen, the man that she sort of met at the ball, and he recognizes her, and she recognizes him, and there's sparks between their eyes. Oh my goodness, I do declare, well, I want to have this picnic that they're having in the garden so much, the whole concept of the tent with two chandeliers in it, oh my goodness, and Polignac is holding forth about the ironically delightful concept of marriage of Figaro. The servants take over the house. Ha! She is just a talky, talky, talky drunk person. (laughs) (laughs) And she's talky, talky drunk throughout this whole movie. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. And there are some, shall we say, meaningful looks to the angelic sound of everybody making their crystal glasses play notes. Mm-hmm. The Duchess de Polignac is flirting with von Fersen, and he's just eyeing Marie back and forth, and she's not, you know, ignoring him either. The Duchess de Polignac is an equal opportunity flirter. She doesn't care. No. <laughs> they thank Romain for having brought the oysters, and it kind of makes me wonder, oh, why is he bringing oysters? Well, I have a theory on that. We'll talk about that in a minute. Mm. Oh, okay. All the cool kids are playing this game. They all have names of people stuck to their foreheads, and they have to play like 20 questions to guess who the person is on their heads. It's kind of a funny game, and Marie is uh, Madame Etiquette. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, am I here? And they're like, thank God, no. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And sure enough, the Duchess of Polignac is that friend who ends up dancing on the table. And what is in that pipe? I am guessing it is opium. Are you really? Because I was wondering the same thing. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, tobacco is kind of a big deal, but I don't think it would be that big of a deal. Well, there's a little after party and Von Fersen and Marie Antoinette are talking on a little um, sofa and he asks Marie Antoinette if she's heard of the Hasselhoff family singers. Is that real? The Hasselhoff family singers? I don't know. I tried to look it up and all I got was pages and pages of David Hasselhoff. So and. I would actually like to know if that's real because the way she laughed, it was like, are you kidding me? Like, it was like they brought an in-joke to the filming or something. Mm -hmm. David Hasselhoff was very big in Germany and France, right? He was a big big recording artist. Yeah. (laughs) Europe loved him. Well, we loved him for that show with Kit, the talking car. We did not love him for his vocal stylings. (laughs) <laughs> we loved him for Baywatch, or I didn't, but people did. Well, we have a quick sighting of Tom Hardy, speaking of beefcakes, over there against the wall, talking to the Duchess of Polignac. He's grumpy. Tom Hardy, by the way, is an action movie star who's actually a very scary character on um, Taboo. He was in Mad Max, the recent one with Charlize Theron. Yeah, and here he is, appearing in a wig. Merry Christmas. Uh, he is irritated, and I'm thinking... 
Why is he irritated? And then we remember, oh, he brought the oysters. He was mad at not having been invited to the Trianon and put pressure to be invited. I think Romont was thinking of making a move tonight. And now he's been blocked by Adam Ant. <laughs> I mean, Marie, come on. Adam Ant, who's actually played by Jamie Dornan, who is Christian Grey in those Fifty Great Shades of Grey movies. Typecasting? I don't know. <laughs> He was the Fifty Shades of Grey of Versailles. That's right. I was actually thinking that Dubarry was Fifty Shades of Grey in oh. Versailles. <laughs> well, anyway, she's gone. And Marie and Axel sitting in a tree. We've come to the portion of their evening where they play, quote, hide and seek. But honestly, it seems like it's just an excuse for people to land in the same bedrooms together. That's the game. Okay. And Marie gets pulled into one, and it's not by Louis, it is by Von Fersen, and there is some action, finally. <laughs> well, that's the assumption. There is a veil of blackout drawn over the scenario, but it's breakfast the next day, and a little bookend scene where the Duchess of Polignac again is all blah, 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 blah. She's having a conversation about people, quote, taking it out, and the Princess de Lumbal's all, I would tell him to put it back in his trousers where it belongs, blah, 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 talking, talking, talking. And Marie Antoinette and our friend Axel von Fersen are again having an unspoken conversation with a little different air about it. Brown chickens and brown cows have occurred. Well, brown chickens and brown cows are occurring in the fields. I mean, you can see them occurring. <laughs> this is why this movie is PG-13, is this one scene, as far as I'm concerned. Again, what is this movie about? Sex, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. But you think okay. so. It's beautiful, beautiful sex. Okie dokie. <laughs> There's always been people who said that Von Fersen and Marie had a romantic relationship. There has been some letters uncovered very recently that suggest to some people that indeed they did. These people go as far as suggesting that two of Marie's children were not Louis. They were Von Fersen's. I, that's a stretch as far as I'm concerned, but it's out there. I'll link you to an article about it it's i don't know the evidence wasn't compelling enough for me but maybe i didn't see it all he did axel von fersen uh help them this is outside of the framework of this particular movie but axel von fersen did strongly attempt to get the royal family out of paris he just wasn't able to pull together his support teams in time to help them. But he did. I mean, you know, that at least implies a, an extraordinarily strong friendship with the queen. So Well, and they had in real life met very early in her time in Versailles. So it wasn't this later on in life clandestine meeting. They had known each other. They had kept company with each other. So they were friends. One example of those in those letters that it says, I love you and will love you madly all of my life. My heart is yours. I don't know. That kind of comes down on the affair side. It does. But OK, so why don't we think about how women spoke to each other back then? You know, when you were friends with women, you know, you were professing your love more openly than people do now, I guess. The wording sounds romantic, but it's really just a good friendship. So I don't know. But I think it's intriguing that there's evidence out there that keeps this story in the news. <laughs> So it is pretty sad after all the events when she watches him getting dressed. She looks bereft. She wishes she could go with him. Of course she cannot. She is deflated. She's so sad. The light has gone out of her life, sort of. 
and he rides away. We see him. He does look back. He's back to the real world. And back to the real world is probably a good time for us to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens in the end game for Marie. So we are back, and Axel von Fersen has just ridden away, not exactly into the sunset, but definitely away, (laughs) (laughs) and the light has gone out of her life. We're back to the staid old promenades. We're back to the card games with your same 12 friends, the slow pace. It is just intolerable to her. The gossip, the smallness, it seems after what she has just been through with the glorious affair and the glorious time with the Petit Trianon, it's like a door has closed upon her. And she's reacting thus. She's like meandering everywhere like a college girl who's just broken up with her boyfriend and is back on her own campus. She emos around the salon in a severe state of ennui. Like, I can't believe I'm here. Poor thing. And then as she's looking out the window, she has, but only in her head, a vision of glorious masculinity. It's von Fersen on his horse and he's at battle at the top of a hill. There's flames shooting up behind him and he's obviously victorious because there's people around him not alive i wrote down that there is someone's whole job is to lie there on his back as dead soldier number one there on the left i mean i guess he knows no one's going to be looking at him but i hope he got his daily you know payment of whatever it was six hundred dollars yeah whatever whatever dead people get paid So she's bored in this room and she asks Louis if she could be excused. It struck me as kind of a strange question to ask, but of course he grants it and she runs back to her rooms where she can fantasize properly, I guess. She's very excited to get back there. Going back just a tiny bit, I also thought that when he said, of course, madame, he calls her madame in public. Now, I call my husband Mr. Graham, but it's kind of an end joke. No, it's totally serious. Her title's madame. She is called Madame by her husband, and she curtsies to him before she leaves. The formality is back in the house. Probably never left, except for only in her mind. And Marie Antoinette takes off in an extraordinarily awkward, although I think her shoes don't have backs on them. Oh, because she's kind of shuffling down the hall of mirrors. Yeah, (laughs) I thought so too. And we hear one of my favorite songs, The Strokes, Whatever Happened. Some of the words are, I want to be forgotten and I don't want to be reminded. But I do think she does want to be reminded. We get at this montage of daydreaming with her (laughs) extremely vacant face where she is living in an alternate reality for just a little while. Do you blame her? No. It's probably a really fun place to be. So there are rumblings of unrest that even we can see now coming through on the screen. We get a big hint about France's money problems out there in the real world and who everyone's blaming for it, which is Marie Antoinette, who we've already established was a drop in the bucket. But society is painting her as this libertine devil, aided by enemies at Versailles, like the ants unforgivable, like the fired Madame Etiquette, also unforgivable, 
So people at Versailles that Marie has insulted or not catered to enough are also helping in her demise. Not good. No, there's a lot of propaganda and Lamballe is reading it to her and she says she's not going to address it. She's going to ignore the trolls, which could have been her biggest mistake right there. Yeah, we hear those National Enquirer headlines. Is the queen giving Thomas Jefferson a tour of her gardens? Uh, (laughs) It got a little cruder than that, but yes. In reality, uh, Versailles, the king and the advisors had people running around buying up and burning these pamphlets as fast as they could. But you know, there's no stemming that kind of flow. But I mean, not everyone ignored them. Some people did understand that these pamphlets, libels or what they were called, were very dangerous, were very damaging. The let them eat cake thing we've debunked over and over and over. But do you know a lie can run around the world before the truth can even get its boots on? They're more delicious, those rumors, (laughs) than the truth would be, which was that she was hanging out on a boat practically falling asleep. I mean, there was some sauciness, don't get me wrong, Axel von Fersen, etc. But there wasn't nearly the amount of things going on that the public was told were going on. But is that the right strategy to ignore them? Like That's what she says in the movie. You know, no, I'm just gonna... I don't think so. Because if there's no alternate story, if she hasn't appeared giving bread to the poor or being concernicus about what was happening to them, if there's nothing to cling on to on the opposite side, you're going to believe the, and I say the with a circle, news that mm-hmm. you hear mm-hmm. if there's no other story. I'm just comparing it to modern day, you know, on social media, something's spreading around so fast, you know, it's common to just ignore it because it'll go away. I don't know what to do on social media. Is the right thing to address it or is the right thing to ignore it? I think the right thing is to address it with citations. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. I know it's too much trouble. So if it's too much trouble, I'd say just ignore it. <laughs> In the garden, Ambassador Mercy is telling Marie Antoinette about the real-life situation, like Louis' advisors did for him a minute ago. Her Majesty must be more attentive. The people of France are hungry, and they can be fickle. And her answer is, tell the court jeweler to stop sending diamonds. Blurg. Blurg. (laughs) Make some real big cuts in her budget. No more diamonds. I have enough diamonds. Didn't you have enough diamonds 10 years ago, girl? Come on now. Blurg. I'm sorry. That was so gross. And I can't imagine. I mean, she might have stopped the court jeweler sending more diamonds, but I don't think that would have been. And therefore, it's all fixed. I d- yeah, come on. <laughs> Maybe in the movie, they're just trying to um, show that she took some steps, but not anything that would make any kind of difference at all. Oh, I guess. So. That's how I saw that particular scene. Well, the little tiny scene between Mercy and little tiny Marie Therese, where you are charming. I'm pleased you find me so. That really happened. And I love the look on Kirsten Dunn's face when he says she's definitely a daughter of France and she rolled her eyes. I know that was just like any modern mother teasing her child about some cute yet precocious behavior. You know, I loved it. I thought that (laughs) was really cute. And I also love that it was based in reality, too. Well, the message comes. Maria Theresa has died far away in Austria. Um, the mother she has not seen in 11 years and now would never see again. There's a voiceover letter from Marie while we see her brother, the emperor, over their their mother's body. You know, it's laying in state. And Marie is telling Joseph to remember that we are allies and we share in your grief. Now, there is a curiously long blackout 
after that scene made more apparent because I didn't have the sound on when I was taking my notes and I thought, wait, something stopped, uh, which struck me. And um, I guess it's supposed to indicate the passage of time because we reopen to the light of Marie Antoinette again in labor and notice the vastly reduced audience. <laughs> That's good. That's I know. Good. Um, that was Louis doing. We've got the Princess de Lombalo is the only one I recognize and I would guess that the others are the officials that must state that the baby that occurs actually came out of the queen. That's what everybody was there for to make sure that nobody was substituted at the last okay. minute. So Marie Antoinette has finished her task and Louis is so serious coming up to her that you can see her getting scared. But then he says, Madame, you have fulfilled our wishes and those of France. You are the mother of a dauphin. I love how happy she is. I know. She's like, yes, it finally happened. I did my job. People may lay off of me now. <laughs> Well, and I'm so happy that she does not see the hair-raising crowd surfing that her son does over the head of everybody all the way through Versailles. On Dauphin! On Dauphin! And the poor old porters are like, holy crap, people. They They have to keep it all inside because nobles are jostling them, but they're like, if I drop this, I die. And y'all are pushing me around. <laughs> you know, when they hand her the baby back when she was in bed before they took him on the crowd surfing tour down the hall, <laughs> it's not a newborn. This always gets me. I, I, I know they can't get a brand newborn for a movie because they're in the hospital still, but somebody closer. You know, these babies are always pink and puffy, <laughs> not newborn babies. Well, okay, it's the maybe, movie. Everybody's I, fancier. I know. <laughs> maybe this is just my own little quirk. Well, I was listening to, I could not for the life of me tell you which audiobook I was listening to, but somebody described newborns as boiled potatoes, all of them, for about a week. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. I, like, everybody looks mm, sort of the same. Yeah. They do. So there is a, another time jump, a giant time jump, actually, forward, followed by some other confusion. So first of all, I think that the painting that Marie Antoinette and the children, the suddenly much older son and the daughter who looks the exact same, is a reference to Marie Antoinette and her two oldest children by Adolf Ulrich Wartmuller. But the movie has this being painted by a woman. And I am 100% sure that this is supposed to be Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, who did paint Marie Antoinette about 30 times. Mm -hmm. This particular part of this movie, the whole reality timeline, and gets all mixed up and they take several liberties. So Marie was 30 years old when that painting, the painting we think she's posing for, was painted. And also we seem to be missing a whole son in this movie. Guess what his name is? See, you can guess. I don't even have to tell you. Here's the thing. I'm not sure which Louis is supposed to be missing. They're all Louis. They're both Louis. <laughs> <laughs> Louis Joseph was the first one, the one we've been with um, here, born when Marie Antoinette was 26. I do believe that Louis Joseph was the one that we saw born. There's also Louis Charles, born when she was 29. And I think we just don't have number two son here at all. No. Well, number one son does die. So maybe that's why she made the, it's too confusing to tell in this little montage of time span. Maybe. That's yeah, the only I, thing I can think of. But just know that there was two sons. And what we do have right here is another painting, this time one actually done by Vijay Lebrun called Marie Antoinette with a rose. It's on the wall with some highlights of French sentiments across that in text, like a little banner. Beware of deficit. 
queen of debt, spending France into ruin. You know from listening to even just this episode that she is just the scapegoat for all of their troubles. She's a foreigner, is usually easier to blame a foreigner, and they sure make no compunctions about blaming her for everything. I love this scene just for storytelling purposes, because that was a great way to demonstrate it with that painting and the little tags over it. And then we travel to the opera. It's the opera Castor and Pollux, all about the creation of the constellation Gemini. So you know there's chaos. Another clever, clever use of the relatively unheard lyrics, which are sad preparations, pale torches, day more frightful than the night, lugubrious stars of tombs, no I shall not see anything but your funeral lights. You who see my heart dismayed. Those are the words she's singing. This mournful song goes all through the next few scenes, by the way. But Marie Antoinette starts to clap at the opera. And what happens? Before, when everybody turned to look at her and she introduced the clapping to the crowd, this time they're all looking at her with disdain. Like, how dare you? Nobody else is clapping. She's up in the box by herself clapping. And everyone's looking at her like, loser, loser, what the hell are you doing? Oh my gosh, Marie Antoinette realizes how far she's fallen. She is just looking around in that opera house for so long. So she is having a bath in reality now. A whole opera house of grim faces are all glaring at her. Oh my gosh, so uncomfortable. With that last scene with the uh, portrait, it did such a good job. This movie did such a good job of showing this fall from grace in a very short period of time. And they um, cut out a third opera scene because Sofia Coppola was saying, actually, I liked the contrast between that first one that was so joyous Mm -hmm. and this one that was so, you know, the antithesis of that, that they completely cut out. I feel bad for the person singing and all the dancers and, you know, they've been to rehearsal. They're excited they're going to be in a Sofia Coppola movie. And they cut that. (laughs) A whole scene. It's bummer. But she thought it was more impactful not to have the middle one. That is true. Yep, she's absolutely right. And now there's the short off-screen life of the third child, Sophie, who's actually the fourth child. Two footmen hang another Vigée Lebrun painting of Marie Antoinette and three children. The real painting has also three children, but a child on her lap and um, none in the empty crib. So the movie has a child painted in the crib. But when the painting comes back with no baby, we, the audience, get it. The child has died. It's a pretty clever way to show what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this whole section's very clever. And you will read that Sophie was, quote, painted out, but she was never really in the painting. Like, there was no baby ever in the crib. It was <clears throat> just um, a device to show that a child had died. There was no baby painted in that painting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because she died while the painting was being painted, so she didn't need to get in there. The scene when the coffin comes out and gets carried away from Versailles. The whole family is dressed in black. It's so very heartbreaking. And evidently royalty did not go to the burial place, which is period appropriate. The view was that royalty is incompatible with mortality, so they should not be seen at the place of death. Um, In fact, I don't think that changed until Queen Victoria had um, broken the mold on that back in in England. So we're still quite a ways from that. But I just kind of wondered why they just 
stood there and mm-hmm. let it drive away. No, I wondered the same thing. I was like, aren't you going? You Shouldn't you be following? But no. Sad. Someone tried to comfort, I say that in quotes, Marie Antoinette by saying that if Sophie were going to die, at least she'd die before Marie Antoinette could get that attached to her, which is horrible. Terrible. And I know. And Marie Antoinette said, don't forget that she would have been my friend. That's all she said back. Mm, which is true. She was really, really good friends with her little daughter, Marie Therese. They spent mm-hmm. a lot of time together. Oh, how she watches the carriage out of sight before she turns and picks up her child. Her absolute devastation in the following scenes is very well depicted. And I was very touched that she was taking what comfort she could by sleeping in Louis Joseph's little bed. This is really very, very sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could feel that. You know, I mean, maybe it's because I'm a mom and I've slept in the beds with my little kids when bad things were happening. But I mean, that's a very real thing for people to do. And yeah, I could feel it. News arrives that a crowd has stormed the Bastille prison and there are recommendations that people should evacuate, especially the Duchess of Polignac, because she has received the worst press, must leave. And the recommendation is that all princes and princesses of the blood should vacate ASAP. It's recommended that the royal family itself, the little royal family, flee to Metz, which is right by the German border, so is very, very fortified. Historically, they've needed it to be very, very fortified, and it is, if only they had gone. Because Versailles was built as a playhouse, a palace, and not a castle. It was a Swiss cheese house made of windows and doors with no fortification. And Metz is like a stone box. You will be safer there. Also, you'll be much further away and people can't just tread the street and come get you. You're going to have significant amounts of warning and then you're going to have significant amount of protection. But incomprehensibly to me, Louis says he's not going to go. It's like the saddest kind of machismo to me. Just go, God, live to fight another day. I don't understand why he didn't go. Well, he had, okay, yes, I kind of do. Actually, I do, whatever. In real life, not mentioned in this movie, he had been negotiating and sort of compromising his power away for a while now. This movie doesn't go into that at all. Louis' main goal, I think, was to be loved, to be seen as a fair man, a just ruler and loved by his people. I think he felt that if he ran away, he'd be betraying what had gone before, I guess, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, in this movie, Marie then says, my place is by my husband's side really easily. But in reality, she had tried to get him to go away with the army to Metz, but he refused. So that's real. But it doesn't show her saying, nope, you know, we should go, honey. It just says, I'm going to stay here by my husband's side. I guess it's maybe like Captain of the Titanic going down, maybe? I just really feel like he wanted to be, I don't even know what the word is. He wanted to be honorable. Like, well, we have been talking. I'm sure we can continue talking. And if I go, I'll be betraying it, the process. And let's just say that your people, Louis, are in no mood to return that favor. Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. He True. does not know that. He is thinking they're going to be reasonable. In real life, their son, the one you've been seeing, the older one, has just died right before this. So, you know, movie thing aside, I would like for you to overlay this scene and all this stress of saying goodbye to people, likely for the very last time, with the appalling grief of just having lost your seven-year-old child. That's real life. So that's Mm -hmm. not even touched on in the movie and would have made it much worse, of course. I don't know that we needed it to be much worse, but in real life, it was very, very bad. So we see people leaving. Absolutely most touching one to me is the Princess de Lumball. And Marie Antoinette shakes her head like, don't cry, don't, don't. And the way Lumball says goodbye, ah, I mean, I actually got tears in my eyes and I'd seen this before and I know it's a movie. (laughs) 
it's really notable that the Duchess of Polignac's goodbye was extraordinarily casual. I never think Duchess of Polignac is her true friend, by the way. I think she was an opportunist. I mean, they, you know, liked each other, whatever. But I really have a feeling that the Duchess de Polignac was always sort of a user. Like if Marie Antoinette had lost her power, she would be vaporized so quickly. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think in real life and in this movie, I thought they did a good job with that. Yes. And what you have from Provence, the second brother is just a nod, really. But Artois, she kisses and sort of punches in the arm. The goodbye with Ambassador Mercy says a lot. I think there's real respect and regret in his eyes. He has been for 20 years. That's how far we've come. He has been her only link to Austria, her constant link to Austria, how far they've come. Is the Princess de Lombol still right behind him? Which I think is an error. I literally think the actress playing her is standing behind him as he walks away. She left and then she was back in the picture? Yeah. Oh, I see. So you see the carriages taking off and uh, we have another photo moment of Marie Antoinette all alone in the stairway. The stairway lit by a chandelier full of light bulbs. But whatever. We're not gonna... <laughs> the stairway is so small. It's like the smallest place we've seen in Versailles. All these rooms are cavernous and the hall of mirrors everything's big and in this last scene it's just her alone in a very small space it must have been the small space you know in the whole place that meant a lot to me that it was like she's alone and she doesn't have the protection that she had before she's alone in a very tight corner correct well the king is warned of a crowd's approach on foot from paris it was almost seven thousand, mostly women marching from paris a rumor had got around that there was some big storehouse of grain at versailles and these women were going to go demand its release and he refuses to leave again. Louis defies advice to retreat to Rambouillet, which is the Princess de Lamballe's kind of family estate, her married-in family estate. Mm -hmm. It's like in the same direction out from Paris, just a little bit farther away. Like, you know, if the people are on foot, they're going to get tired before they get there. It won't it stop people in a carriage or a wagon, but it's going to stop this particular mob if we can just retreat that much further. Mm -hmm. In this scene, at the very beginning, though, he had enough dudes left to go hunting. They come to get him while he's out hunting again, which I don't know. Did they just want to use the horses another time? Oh, no. It, the Princess of the Blood were the ones that left. Not everyone left. It wasn't like rats, to, you know, deserting a sinking ship. At least not yet it wasn't. Right. But I'm uh, OK. I, I just can't imagine there's it's such a bad situation that he still goes off and goes hunting. Well, he's going to live his life. At, you know, what are you going to do? He was warned of the approach of the people and came home. Mm -hmm. That's he true. Didn't, he didn't know they were marshalling. You yeah. know, there's there's no internet. Yeah. Nobody posted on Instagram. <laughs> Heading to Versailles. Hashtag getting that bread now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or anything. Yeah. He didn't know. And then when the second he did know, he came straight home. But yeah. no retreat, says the king, and thus doomed his family. By the time the crowd had made it to Versailles, which took about six hours, you have plenty of time to leave, is what I'm saying. Uh -huh. um, the crowd had been riled up by additions that wanted to cause chaos, people angry at the royal family. It had become less of a bread riot and more of a howling mob. They were so het up, so heartily about Marie Antoinette and it being all her fault that by the time they got to Versailles, they had alternate 
tasks in mind. Rather than just demanding the bread, they wanted to do some other stuff too. The mob did manage to get in and they started looking for the queen to hurt her. And luckily they didn't know the layout very well. (laughs) And so Marie Antoinette was warned in time and we see her using a secret passage to escape, which was true. Not shown in this movie, the mob... Angry that they didn't find the queen, took at least two heads off of some guards at the door and started carrying them around on sticks. Maybe, in fact, the guy that had just run to warn Marie Antoinette. So this is no longer a um, jovial parley situation. There has been murder. Would you not think that Marie Antoinette would have some clothes on already? She's sitting up in bed in her nightgown and they must dress her before she goes into the secret passage. Yeah, I thought that was odd that she wasn't already dressed. Because just think about it for yourself. If you're under a tornado watch. There you go. Perfect. That's a perfect representation. Do you put your pajamas on and go to bed? I mean, if you know that the storm is right barreling down on you and there's a good chance you have to go to your basement. Yeah. Well, the family and all manner of scared courtiers are holed up in Louis' rooms and the noise is horrible. I see why the little boy is crying for sure. And... I'm sorry, but Louis' protective stance irritates me. It infuriates me. He's had at least two major chances to remove his family from danger, and he chose not to. So stop with your arms now, dumb Alec. I know. They could have been in Metz. They could have been in Austria. So your mm-hmm. grumpy face can just bleh. He looked like he was posing for a painting. Like he just stands there his chest out and his arms protecting his family from a crowd outside. I uh, no. In real life, he went out on that balcony and um, agreed to meet with some people to talk about what they wanted. That's omitted from the movie. In the movie, the crowd is chanting, we want the queen. We want the queen. Now, she was the second person to go out on the balcony, not the only person as we see. And in real life, she took the kids as a shield, question mark, or as PR. Hmm, I don't know. I don't know which. But the crowd yelled at her to take them away, take the kids away. And so she did. And she came back out by herself for real for 10 minutes. She stood there with I don't know how many muskets pointed at her. We saw pitchforks down there on the ground. We saw torches, but people in the crowd had muskets. And yes, you could only fire them the once, but if there's enough of them, you know, there's a good chance that someone could have taken the right shot. Kind of surprised that they didn't at least refer to that because that would be scarier, wouldn't it? But their anger sort of drained away, sort of drained away. This was all so real. Some people even yelled, Viva la Reine, by the way, long live the queen. A segment had really just come to get bread from their king, who they still loved, and he had agreed to talk to their representatives. I mean, the crowd was not all of one mind. Gosh, such a weird and confusing evening. And movie Marie Antoinette is really showing her bravery here for sure. It's even stranger to me that this is a version of what actually happened. It kind of is unbelievable to me that she was willing to go out there by herself and that she really, really did. Mm-hmm. And I know people that see this movie are going to be like, no way, rolling your eyes. She would never have done that. But sh- the fact is she did and the silence spread across the crowd. That is real. This comes back to ignoring the trolls. I mean, she's facing them. So then they kind of soften a bit. So maybe facing them is the right thing to do. You're right. <laughs> You're right, Beckett, again. <laughs> Marie Antoinette and Louis are at the Grand Couvert, but what a difference from the Grand Couverts of the past. I would say all of the 
noble participants are gone from the Grand Couvert. The servant people are still there. Although I have to say, I think the servant that gives him the wine has a face on. Look at him a little bit. He almost looks like smug. He does bring the tray with the wine over. He really mm-hmm. does. But I, I just don't think he's as respectful as they once were. Now even Louis's not eating. Yeah. Yeah. And he was always diving into that plate. They still had enough food, though, for this meal. And it was beautiful. The chef still, you know, did a beautiful meal in front of them, but they really didn't eat at all. They just held their hands and kind of prayed together. Marie Antoinette's look is something else. Love, maybe, at last, true love. They do spend a lot of time on them looking at each other and things are said without having to be said. I don't know. I think she had true love back, you know, when she was at uh, Le Petit Trianon when he came. That was true love to me, I think. I guess so. Or and least... I think they've had something because they've been together for so long. I mean, they had, you know, they were friends, kind of. <laughs> and then they were kind of friends with lots of benefits. <laughs> so I think there was love. But I think this is kind of where they understand what's happening around them for the very first time. Mm-hmm. The stuff that they've been ignoring and just weren't shown because they didn't ask to see it. Mm-hmm. And that's them accepting their role in that whole situation. So the next morning, the family is being taken away. They are actually being taken away to the Tuileries in Paris. And Louis tries to make small talk. Are you admiring your lime avenue? A lime tree, in this case, is what we might call a linden. It's not a citrus tree. Just in case you want to know. She says, I'm saying goodbye. And does Louis look surprised to you? Like he didn't realize it had gone that far? I think so. He seems shocked when she says she's <laughs> saying goodbye and, and looks out the window. Like, really? Well, maybe he still thought that he, there stood a chance of everything going back to normal. If he just mm-hmm. continues diplomacy, they're going, you know, they're going somewhere where they can talk to people face to face and we'll get this all straightened out. Where she's like, oh man, I'm done. This is it. Bye. Well, in reality, 60,000 people walked back with them. Yes. <laughs> with those heads again, I guess to prove that they meant business and also loaves of bread on the ends of sticks. Heads and breads. You know, there's no way this turns out well. No. <laughs> but we don't know that. We don't know that because here's where the movie ends. With a fade to black. And the amazing song, All Cats Are Great by The Cure, with their emo lyrics. We do get one little view of Marie Antoinette's bedroom the next morning. Not as torn up as you would think it would be, frankly. Um, Some things are scattered around. Some things are broken. A couple of silk things are ripped, but not really to the amount of devastation that I would think would be happening. Yeah, I would have thought they would have used those torches to burn some fabric. And at least carted the fabric away. Can you imagine your kerchief if you're a milkmaid and you've got the silk hangings from the queen's bed as your kerchief? Wow. Yeah. Good point. Or you could sell it and buy a farm. (laughs) True, true. That's that. Movie-wise, I'm very glad. I don't like the next part of Marie Antoinette's story, which if you would like to hear what happens, you can listen to the Marie Antoinette episode of our other podcast, The History Chicks, which I highly recommend. It'll give you sort of um, background with which to enjoy this movie, which has a lot more realism in it than you would think it does. Mm -hmm. 
Although, you know, the timeline has gotten awful wacky. You know, maybe a, a quick, quick epilogue might be necessary here. The royal family were imprisoned, ultimately failed in an escape attempt organized by Axel von Fersen, separated from each other, and all of the immediate family died except for Princess Marie Therese. The Duchess of Polignac died very soon after Marie Antoinette did. In 1793, she died of cancer. The Princess de Lombard was actually completely safe in England and thought it was her duty to come back to her friend Marie Antoinette out of loyalty and to buoy up her friend's spirits. And that loyalty cost her about a year before it happened to Marie. They took Princess Lombard and they executed her and they took her head on a stick and put it outside of Marie's window so she could see her dear friend, her loyal friend dead, you know, her head. How horrible. Well, that was their intention. But I will tell you that Marie Antoinette's jailers told her not to look out the window. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they closed the shutters, but they did tell Marie Antoinette to turn her back and do not look out the window because they were trying to save her that at least. Yeah. Not that I really admire them for too much else, but at least there was that. <laughs> well, the Comte de Provence became King Louis XVIII upon the death of Marie Antoinette's son um, from disease, and he ruled for about 10 years as a constitutional monarch, similar to the way that Queen Elizabeth II rules England now. When he died... The Comte d'Artois, the third brother, succeeded him as not Louis the Nineteenth, what? <laughs> but as Charles the Tenth, and he reigned for six years. His son, that little baby, the Duke de Longueleme. <laughs> It's hard to say. (laughs) Um, Ultimately married his cousin, Marie Therese, and was technically the king for about 19 minutes until he abdicated. So also technically, little Marie Therese, all grown up, was the queen of France for not very long. So the reviews of this seem to be mixed. There were some boos when it was shown at Cannes. On the average, over the entirety of France, it received a four star out of five star rating. So it was largely viewed as positive. Okay. So it was the people who didn't like modern music that didn't like it. I think it was the conservative people who they hated the soundtrack. They hated the accent thing that we talked about in part one or the lack of accents. They were not amused at the wink wink casting of people like Rip Torn and Marianne Faithful. You know, things rubbed them the wrong way. What are you going to do? One prominent critic referred to this as Versailles in Hollywood sauce, which of course it is. It totally is. So what? (laughs) Says me, an American. Uh, Who cares? Yeah. But all those casting decisions and all the, you know, the the music decisions that Sofia Coppola made, she knew they were going to be controversial when she made them. So... I I think those people who said, no, no, this movie's horrible. I can't believe they did this to the story probably, you know, increased the interest in it. Like, oh, what did they do? And it did win an Oscar for costume design. I would hope so. Although they were up against The Devil Wears Prada that (laughs) year. And any other year, The Devil Wears Prada would have won. So sucks to be them. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) (laughs) That's really sad. And that's it, I think, for our coverage, except for the fact that I have a bit of links to leave you with. I'm sure you do, too. I'm going to strongly recommend that you read Antonio Frazier's Marie Antoinette. It's the book that this movie was based on. And if you've never read it, you have these images, these beautiful images in your head already. So I think that would just add another depth to reading this book, even though it's not real. 
you know, it's not really what Marie Antoinette looked like. I just think that that adds so much to have that, maybe just because I'm a visual learner, but to have that in your head while you're reading it. Also, uh, Tony Spaforce Versailles is also beautiful. Which is more of a coffee table book about the history of Versailles and the assorted, you know, you got floor plans and renovations and also kind of the reason rooms were where and how they were. I really mm-hmm. liked it. I recommend mm-hmm. that book all the time. Yeah, me too. On YouTube, I found Jason Schwartzman as Louis um, acting like he was in, on an episode of Cribs, which was a show MTV used to show, and it was mostly rappers. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, there he is walking through Versailles like he's on an episode of Cribs. I thought that was hilarious. I don't that know. is funny. I'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> and then I have a explanation of the different positions in Marie Antoinette's household. Also a link to the garden that inspired Marie Antoinette's Hameau, her little village, and a place where you can buy the blooming jasmine tea. Even today, it exists. And I also have a link to Les Deux Chasseurs et la Latière, which is The Two Huntsmen and the Milkmaid, the performance that Marie Antoinette gave where she was the milkmaid who didn't know how to use a broom. But if you wanted to hear the music, there are links to the um, all the songs in that operetta. And apropos of absolutely nothing, the key to the Bastille is in America on display at Mount Vernon, which was the house of our first president, George Washington. If you're nearby, you should go and give it a look. We will provide you a link as to how it got there in the first place. I've got nothing else. And that will do it for our coverage of Sofia Coppola's 2006 movie, Marie Antoinette. We will see you next time with another mysterious project. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.